Gracious God, be with us today as we study your holy word. We pray that we would learn something new about the depth of grace that we have in Jesus the Messiah, and that as we increase our capacity to live our life for him, that he would live his life through us, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, well, today we dive into Romans 8, and although we are taking Romans chapter by chapter, I am not content to spend only one week on Romans 8. So I've broken it up into two parts, and today we're going to talk about part one. So let us begin. Paul writes, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and to deal with sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit." To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. All right, so after we spent some time with Romans 7, where Paul has basically gone over the fact that, you know, the things that he wants to do, he does not do, and the things he doesn't want to do, that is which he does. And whether he is describing his own experience or articulating what it's like to be Israel bound to Adam or to be in Adam, uh, either way, uh, he ends Romans 7 by saying, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he has aggravated our situation. It is a moral and cultic horror where we are in this body of death and we need to be rescued. And that is what the buildup is all the way to the end of Romans 7. And Paul ends by saying, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, which is basically his way of saying, Jesus has rescued us. And so as we transition into Romans 8, we do so with an awareness that God has solved some sort of major problem for us. And he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, Philip Turner makes a wonderful distinction between a judgment and a condemnation. A judgment is just an accurate telling of what the situation is. It's an accurate naming of what is so, even if that is our sin, our brokenness, But a condemnation is whenever there is a a verdict of guilty and we're cast out of the presence of God or exiled from Eden. And here Paul says, even though we have made many judgments, many judgments about human beings and our capacity and our sinfulness and our need for rescue, judgments about the many ways we rebel against God, he says, let's be clear, there is no condemnation because we are in That's a very important preposition for Paul. We are in Christ Jesus. We have been transferred from Adam to Christ through baptism, a 
transfer of solidarity and citizenship has taken place. And Paul says in verse 2 that the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. We note that Paul has been playing around with some dualisms, right? There's a difference between being in Adam and being in Christ. And now Paul distinguishes the law of the spirit of life or a life animated by God's Holy Spirit. Um, Paul makes a distinction between that and the law of sin and death. And in verse 3, he notes that God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. And that, of course, is rescue us. And so it's not that the law is bad. It's not that the law is a problem. Paul has established this already. The law is a gift from God. However, it just can't get the job done. It can't rescue humanity. It can't clean out our hearts. It can't usher us into the near presence of God. And when Paul speaks of the flesh being weakened, you'll notice that Paul often speaks of the flesh in negative terms, not always. And it's important to note that for Paul, the flesh is not bad. It's just easily corrupted. And Paul's point is that sin has corrupted the flesh, and thus the flesh under law cannot please God. And so God has just done, Paul says, what the law never could do. And that Paul did this by sending his son, he says, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, that word likeness of sinful flesh is important because there is a tradition in Christianity, and it is noted in the scriptures, Hebrews being one place, that Jesus was without sin. And so here Paul is kind of casually referencing that tradition um, that Jesus was in the flesh uh, but it wasn't the sinful, corruptible flesh, that Jesus' flesh was never corrupted by sin in the same way that ours has been corrupted. And then he says that God has dealt with sin, verse 3, by condemning sin in Jesus' flesh. Now, I like to point out that Paul says that God condemned sin in Jesus' flesh, not that God condemned Jesus. This is really important for two reasons. One is we have in Romans 8 the seeds of a Trinitarian theology where God sends the Son and you have the Spirit at work, and the the role of the Spirit is going to become more apparent in the second half of today's uh, lesson from Romans. Um, But God does not condemn Jesus. God condemns Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, God condemns sin in Jesus' flesh. And so whenever we think about what the cross was, because clearly there's a little bit of that penal substitution model of atonement kind of being held forth here, it's not that this angry, wrathful father needs someone to punish, and so he chooses Jesus, this perfect scapegoat, uh, scapegoat in order to kind of take the punishment, but that sin itself is somehow condemned in the flesh of Jesus, the Messiah. And then he says in verse 5, in light of that, that we are not to set our minds on the things of the flesh, but rather to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. Earlier, you recall that Paul used the word reckon quite a bit. He said, reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And he said that, that God has reckoned righteousness to us. The word reckon is not used here, but here when Paul speaks of setting our mind It's another way of saying 
reckon, you know, kind of do the math. Think about being the steward of your mind and set it in the right place. Don't set it in Adam. Don't set it uh, on the things of the flesh, but rather on the spirit. And then in verse 6, he says, if we do this, this is life and peace. Now, when Paul says that to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace, uh, Paul is not just trying to give us good vibes. He's not trying to help us to feel good, but he's actually referencing Malachi 2.5 where God's covenant with Levi is said to be a covenant of life and peace. Well, who was Levi? Levi was a high priest. Levi was a priest, it, originally one of the, the 12, but uh, the, 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 um, the Levites, so the book of Leviticus. Um, this, this is the priests of Israel. And so here what Paul is doing by referencing this covenant with the priests is to say this is also a covenant with priests, with a new royal priesthood, people who have a call to offer their bodies as a living sacrifice, which he'll say later what that means. And so here we are uh, invited to imagine ourselves as a new priesthood, as a people through whom the creation knows the goodness, love, and mercy of God. Um, And so just want to offer that up. And so As these first seven verses come to a close, Paul sums it up by saying that if our mind is set on the flesh, that that posture is hostility to God, um, and that it's impossible for such a mind to submit to God's law. And he even says that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so here Paul basically says that if the goal is to live a life pleasing to God, if the goal is to put on this royal priesthood, which is one of life and peace, that somehow our minds have to be set on what Paul calls the Spirit. You and I know that as the Holy Spirit, and Paul will kind of unpack a little bit of what that means uh, as Romans 8 goes on. So I'll go ahead and pause there, and we'll see what your thoughts are on the first half of Romans 8. Verse 9, but you are not in the flesh, you are in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him, but if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his Spirit that dwells in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, if in fact we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. So here Paul reminds the church that they're not in the flesh. And thus to set their mind on the flesh would be kind of silly because they are in the spirit and that the spirit of God dwells in them. And that you in verse 9 
Although I think it's perfectly appropriate for you to see yourself as an individual in whom the Spirit dwells, that's really a communal you. Paul is speaking to the church. And for those of you who have been taught that, you know, the church never had a doctrine of the Trinity until the Council of Nicaea, then a bunch of people got in a room and made it all up, um, that is not fully the truth. Uh, the seeds of Trinitarian theology are all here in Romans chapter 8. You have God sending the Son, and we are all together in the Spirit. And here in verse 9, when Paul speaks of being led by the Spirit of God, there's a clear echo to the book of Exodus. Because remember what Paul is doing in Romans is really articulating the new Exodus, where in the same way that the people of Israel were rescued from Pharaoh, so we have been rescued from sin. And we remember in Exodus that spirit uh, manifested as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. We're told day by day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And in the book of Exodus, that pillar is the presence of God. So here, it's subtle, but we have a very clear articulation of the Spirit as the presence of God referencing the book of Exodus. And so Paul has a high Christology and a high view of the Spirit. And here we have God, Son, Spirit cooperating and making us a new creation. And so the seeds of that are clearly in the New Testament, not just here, but I want to point it out since it is in Romans 8. And so verse 10, uh, Paul says, Christ is in you. Uh, here again, he is speaking to the church. Um, uh, in a different letter, he'll say, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, that the church is a temple of God's presence? Uh, and similar imagery is being offered here with Christ dwelling in us. When he says the body is dead because of sin, you might recall the reference at the end of Romans 7 where Paul says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Uh, thanks be to God. And so when Paul speaks of the body being dead, we can kind of tease out what that means. But here I think he is speaking of the flesh that still kind of has the habituated patterns of life in Adam that still does the things that it doesn't want to do, as he mentioned in Romans 7. And he says, even though that body is basically dead, that the spirit is life inside of you because of righteousness, which N.T. Wright translates as God's covenant faithfulness. In other words, because God's faithfulness to God's covenant, the spirit is working in you, even though it feels as if the body is not always cooperating. And so in verse 12, when he says we are debtors, remember Paul's kind of paradoxical understanding of freedom and slavery. Um, for Paul, we will be a servant or slave of something. And in Romans, he really gives us the option of being a slave to sin uh, or a slave to God. And because he is articulating a worldview of the church being enslaved to God, he says that we are in debt, that we owe our lives, that we owe all our all, that we owe all that we are, uh, not to the flesh, but rather to this new life of the spirit. 
Um, and in verse 14, he says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. And so I go back to that question I asked E.V. earlier about what is it at the end of the day that will motivate us to live the sort of life that the law pointed to? You know, what is it that will enable us uh, to live the life that God created us to live, a life of, of mercy and love and of godly dominion as Adam exercised? And I think here Paul introduces an idea which is a knowledge that we are children of God. Um, All who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. Verse 16, it is that very Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And of course, this is the NRSV trying to be sensitive to, you know, issues of um, gender inclusion. The, The Greek word is sons, you know, sons of God. And this is not a reference only to the men, right? In the same way that men and women are invited to be the bride of Christ, um, Paul invites men and women to imagine themselves as sons. And that's really important because Israel was said to be the son of God. We see that in Psalm 2 where uh, Israel is given sonship. Uh, And so here Paul is essentially bringing back that theme of Israel being God's sons, God's heirs. And Paul says that the church is to uh, take on that mantle, to know themselves as God's sons. Um, But not just sons, but adopted sons. Um, We've been given a spirit of adoption, and as it's been noted by many New Testament scholars, that the position of adoption, of being an adopted sons in antiquity, was a really privileged position because if you adopted a son, you could not disown that child. Um, There was something sacred about adoption, and there was a security to adoption that I think Paul is referencing here. Uh, And of course, this ties back to his whole understanding that there is no condemnation. And so in the first half of Romans 8, we've really pivoted Romans 7 was all about, you know, the good I want to do, I cannot do. Well, now we're reminded that there's no condemnation, that we are adopted sons of God. Um, He'll later say that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And that, of course, is an invitation to live a different sort of life, which Paul begins referencing when he says, if we suffer with him, we'll also be glorified with him. And so Paul is not inviting us to ride off into the sunset as comfortable people, uh, but rather as we think of ourselves being out of Adam and in Christ, as people who have received the Spirit, to think about our vocation as God's people to be to, to somehow join in in Christ's sufferings uh, and to suffer with Christ. And we can talk a bit about what that means and what it doesn't, but it is a big part of Paul's understanding. And in fact, we'll get to this next week, but at some point he'll say, I don't consider that the sufferings of this present time are worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed. And so this kind of tension between suffering and glory is going to be a big theme in Romans 8 moving forward.